Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. But now put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and foul talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices and have put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forbearing one another, and, if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were all called in the one body. And be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Of all the ways we can make a difference in the world, love is the best. When we choose to love, we're setting aside intolerance, prejudice, and apathy. Love inspires us to take care of one another and see each person as a child of God. God has equipped us with everything we need to make a difference. For what the world needs now is love. Last Saturday, you may have been watching the Kentucky Derby as I was. It had to be one of the most exciting races that I have seen ever run at the Derby. If you didn't see it, it was about a horse named Rich Strike. He was starting on the far outside. He was 80 to 1 to win. No one gave him a chance. And when they broke and they began to run, if you're on the far outside, you then run all the way to the rail. Those who are starting on the rail, well, that's where they want to be. You're going to run straight ahead. It's the shortest distance. So if you're starting on the far outside, by the time you get all the way over the rail, you're probably going to be in last place. And that's exactly what happened. Rich Strike started with two other horses basically in last place, and they were off and running. As they continued to go along, Sonny Leon, the jockey, was able to get him all the way up to 15th out of 20 horses. He was still running far back. But as they came around the corner into the stretch, it kind of opened up there on the rail as all the horses kind of spread out and began to race towards the end. And, And now suddenly, Rich Strike just began moving along, weaving between some some of the horses and was continuing to gain ground. And it's like everyone was running at one speed and he was running at a whole different speed. And he just ran and kind of came up. The two favorites were leading. They'd pulled away from the pack. It's kind of like they were in a race to see who was going to win the roses. Those two it was down to. And suddenly Rich Strike just ran right past them. I mean, he ran past them like they were standing still, and he was running, winning, winning, running away. It was amazing. It was so exciting. Such a race. It was the second longest shot to ever win the Kentucky Derby. 
80 to 1. Well, then, of course, they start interviewing all the different people. They were interviewing Rich, Rick Dawson, who was the owner of the horse. They were interviewing Eric Reed, who was the trainer. And they were just interviewing all these different people. And it's always great fun to watch that. But as they were interviewing them, I became very intrigued. I was very impressed with the things that I was hearing and the spirit that I was seeing. And I decided I wanted to know more. I wanted to really find out about these people and what had just happened because it was such an incredibly inspiring race. Well, it turns out that Rick Dawson lives in Edmond, Oklahoma. He's an Oklahoman. He's the owner of the Kentucky Derby winner. So I called Rick and he took my call. And we got to visit for about 30 minutes. Had a great time getting to visit. It was just really wonderful. He, he was so very gracious and so very kind. And I just started learning more about him and, and about the race. Turned out that he was an oil and gas business, a landman. Had done that for a number of years. He was now in his 60s and was more or less kind of semi-retired. But he wanted to get in the horse racing business. Wanted to learn about racing. He said, I, I wasn't doing it to get to the Kentucky Derby. I wasn't doing it to earn money. I just wanted to have fun learning about horses and racing. And so he started trying to learn more. In the end, he wanted to get hooked up with a trainer. It was a friend of his, Pete Soro. Pete Soro lived in Kentucky. And it turned out that Rick had had to be in Kentucky doing his job years back. Had met Pete. They had become friends. Pete's now in his 80s. And he had called Pete and said, do you know of a trainer? And he said, I do. I know Eric Reed. And they got introduced. And he said, Eric was just so humble. You could tell a family man, so down to earth. He loved to hunt and fish. And he had a small horse farm. He said, that's really the kind of place that I wanted to be. I felt that would be right for me to be learning and having some fun. And so before they knew it, they had a horse, a rich strike. It was last fall when they got him. And after he'd been out running a little bit, it was Eric who called Rick and said, you know, I don't want to get your hopes up, but I think we may have something here. They had no idea. They began preparing and running some, preparing for that day, if that might be possible. Well, you have to run enough races, you earn points to be able to get in the Kentucky Derby to qualify. 20 horses get to run. Rich Strike was 21. 21. And in the end, it was Rick and Eric who made the decision, let's go ahead and go to Churchill Downs, just like we're in the race. Let's go ahead and go. We can train. We can be there in case somebody withdraws, scratch. I mean, it happens all the time. But they were there, and each day they would wait and listen and look, and no one was scratching. No one was withdrawing. The deadline is Friday morning at 9 o'clock. Of course, the race is on Saturday. Friday at 9 o'clock, you have to withdraw by then. And finally got to be about 10 till 9. And they started texting friends. Not going to happen. It's close. We really got close. It was exciting. But it's obvious it's not going to happen. And it was just a couple of minutes after that, they got the call that the aerial road had withdrawn. There was an opening and you're in. Number 21, the reason he ran with number 21 on his blanket, they didn't have time to change it to number 20. 
I mean, his time almost the race the next day. He was number 21. Shouldn't have been in the race. 80 to 1, and he goes and wins. I mean, it was amazing. So I said, so, so you got hooked up now with Eric Reed? Yes, yes, it was through my friend, Pete Soro, who introduced us. And, and he said, you know, I went to go work with Eric. I went to his farm. He said, I wanted to learn. And I know I asked some really stupid questions. And he never once said, Rick, that's a stupid question. He was very gracious, very patient, and he always answered them. And truthfully, I learned. And that is how we built what we built. And then he said, on race day, he had invited Pete Soro to be with him in his box. The man who had got he and Eric together in the first place. And Pete's granddaughter was there. And after they had won against all odds, she, she created a, a drawing of, of this race, of the symbolism of what it was. And she wrote at the bottom and it said, never say never. I said, you know, this Sunday is going to be the Sunday in which I'm talking to our graduates. If you had anything you wanted to say to them, I mean, Rick, you're the Kentucky Derby winner with a horse that should never have even been in the race and it wins. If you had anything to say to them, what would you say? He said, you need to tell those graduates, when life knocks you down, you have to get back up and never say never. Graduates, life will knock you down. It's going to happen sooner or later. It will get hard. Life's going to knock you down. But through the grace of God, you can get back up. And God will give you vision and dreams about the future. Never say never. What you need is that team that gets built. I could see that when I was listening to all these interviews and then visiting with Rick. You could tell it was a team that was built, that had great respect for each other. They had a great love for each other. And when you have that kind of support, it's amazing what you can do. That's what Paul was trying to create in the early church. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, What the World Needs Now. In the 14th verse, Paul says, And above all these things, put on love. It's what the world needs now. Paul was writing to the Colossians. The people in Colossae at the church were struggling. What was the problem? Well, we can read. It says, put away all anger and malice and bitterness and lying about one another. Paul did not start the church in Colossae, but we believe he may have been there. Colossae was a small town. He started the church in Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica. Those were major cities. Paul did not start this church in a small town, but it is on the road to Ephesus, so there's a good chance Paul went by Colossae and had met the people. And now they're having a struggle, and Paul writes to them, 
And what's fascinating is the struggle they're having in Colossae in a small church is the same struggle they're having in Ephesus. It's exactly what he would write to Corinth. It's what he would write to the Thessalonians. Over and over, this seems to be the struggle of the church. Put away anger and malice and jealousy. Why is that happening? Paul had brought so many different people together. As he said this morning, there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythians, and rich and poor and slave and free. We are one in Christ. Well, in every church, he was bringing all these different people together. And if you bring lots of different people together, there's lots of different opinions and ideas and values. And, and in the end, it's really easy to start fighting and speaking about one another poorly, and it tears the church apart. And that's what Paul was trying to say. We're seeking to create community, a team where people encourage, where people support, where people help you up when you get knocked down, where people help you have dream and a vision of what God has called you to be. And you've got to be a certain way in the community of faith if that's going to happen. If we're arguing in anger and malice, then you're going to lose it. We will lose the church. We will lose family. We need something more. So Paul tells us, how do you create this community we also need? I think Paul tells us three things this morning. First of all, Paul said, put on compassion and kindness. Compassion. The word means to feel with. Do you ever take the time to put yourself in somebody else's place and think, what are they feeling or ask the question, if I say this or I do that, how are they going to feel? Do you ever take your time to put yourself in somebody else's place to have compassion, to feel with them? Right now, you and I live in a world where we say what's on our mind, even if it's to strangers and we don't know them. Through social media, we can be so critical and harsh and mean. What does it mean to stop for a moment and think, how is someone going to feel if I say that? If I do this, have compassion. Put on kindness. Just recently, I, I went up to the mall to go do some shopping. It was one of my semi-annual trips to the mall. <laughs> I, it's just not my favorite place to go, but I, I was there and I was in the men's department and I I looked up and saw Hugo Boss, and it made me remember one of my favorite stories about Werner Balsarini. Werner Balsarini, he was the CEO of Hugo Boss. It was back in 20, 2001. He was traveling from Europe to New York for a big fashion convention there in New York, and it happened to be on September the 11th. And unbeknownst to all the people who were in the airs traveling to the United States, we were under attack. And they weren't really being told why, but they were being told they were being diverted and they didn't know where they were going. Werner was on that plane that got diverted to Gander, Newfoundland. 
If you've seen the musical Come From Away, you know the story. It is incredible. All these planes landed in Gander, in Gander Newfoundland. 7,000 people suddenly arrived in a town of 10,000. And now all these people needed some place to stay, somewhere to eat. They could not get their luggage off the planes. They were going to need clothes. They were going to need medical supplies. 7,000 guests in a moment that start arriving. And the people of Gander rose to the occasion in this incredible way to start providing housing and food and clothes and medicine and all these things they would need. Well, Werner was there in Gander. They landed in Tuesday. There weren't cell phones in those days. They had a couple of pay phones. People were letting you come into their houses and try to use their phones. It was hard to get communication. It was crazy on 9-11. It wasn't until Wednesday that he could let his office know, I'm in Gander. I'm safe. They had thought he was going to land in Toronto. They'd had people in Toronto, and he didn't get off there. So the next day they found out that he was in Gander. Well, immediately his team got on the phone. They started thinking, do we have an outlet in Newfoundland? They did. In the town of St. John's, they had a clothier there who carried Hugo Boss. And so they called. His name was um, Byron Murphy. Byron Murphy. They said, Werner Valderacini is there in Gander. We need you to take some clothes to him. They gave him his sizes. I mean, he's going to need shirts, he's going to need pants, he's going to need belts, socks, underwear, everything. And so he starts going to get all these things together. And I said, by the way, Werner loves good wine. He loves great cheese. I think you ought to put together a nice basket for him. They told him the kind of wine, cheese, goodies to put together. Byron was thrilled to do it. I mean, Werner was like a rock star for people who were in the fashion world. He had never met him. He thought, this is going to be incredible. I'm going to meet him in person here in Gander. Then it was easy for him to go to Gander because that's where Byron had grown up. It was a several-hour trip from St. John, but he got everything together. He drove there to, to Gander. He had been told that, that Werner was there at the high school. He knew exactly where the high school was. He went, he had him paged, and he saw him walking across that cafeteria he recognized him from all the magazines, the pictures. He saw Werner. And Werner came up and he was quite gracious. And, and Byron said, I, I have some things for you out in the car. And he brought him out to the car and said, I, I got these clothes for you here. I got all this food for you here, this wine, these cheese. And he said, Werner got quiet. He was just very thoughtful looking at things. And finally he spoke and said, the wine and the cheese and all the good, they look delicious. They're wonderful. Thank you so very much. But I cannot accept these. The women of Gander have been cooking 24 hours a day for the last two days to try to feed all of us. If I bring this back in there, it's going to say that what they had for us wasn't good enough. I would never do that to them. And the clothes? Well, you can tell I'm wearing hand-me-downs. He said, I'd love the clothes. But if I start wearing those clothes, again, it's going to say to the people of Gander, what you had for me wasn't good enough. 
I would never say that to them. But I will take the underwear. <laughs> he took back inside. Byron went with him. They came back in the cafeteria and they sat down and started to visit. They visited about the fashion world. They visited about business. They visited about politics. Several hours. I mean, Byron had the opportunity to visit with Werner. And they had such a great time. Finally, he drove back home for hours and got home past midnight with the clothes and with all the wine and cheese. The next day, his office called and said, okay, we've been able to finally get a private jet and we think we're getting it all put together. We should be able to fly to Newfoundland to get you back home. And Vernon said, no, 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 no. I can't do that. I'd be a traitor. We're all waiting to get out of here together. We don't know when we're going to get out of here or how we're going to get out of here. But I'm going to stay and be with everyone until we all get out of here together. He said, i got to tell you, something magical is happening here. It's like we are community. He began to explain, he said, you know, the, the people of Gander, the way they've come together to care for us, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter if you're straight or gay. It doesn't matter what religion you are. Everybody is treated with respect. They have shown compassion for us all. And so we've been doing that for one another. And I'm telling you, it's been the most magical thing I may have ever experienced. We're community. It's the very thing that everybody wants. Some place where you feel that you are loved and you belong, where everyone is treated with respect, that takes compassion to feel with kindness. Paul said if we are angry and slandering and we're jealous and we're telling lies about each other, we're going to kill this thing, the church. You got to put on kindness, put on compassion, so that it can be the place that when life knocks you down, you find the strength to get back up and to continue to dream and never say never. You can do that when you have that kind of a, a team that you have built. Secondly, Paul would say, and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. I love how he always does that. He does it in all of his letters. You need to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. He never wants us to forget that. Christ has forgiven you. We all stood in the need of forgiveness. Now, go forgive one another. That's what Paul was trying to remind the people of Colossae. As Christ has forgiven you, go forgive one another. You see, Paul understood we're all human. And as good as we may be, as much as we may try, we're all going to still do things that hurt each other. We will say things, we will do things. We're going to hurt each other. And if we can't forgive each other, then you'll never have family. If you can't forgive each other, you'll have no long-term friendships. If we can't forgive each other, we'll never have church. You never have that community. 
Because it's going to happen. You know, I was 19 years old when I got, when I asked to take a little country church. And Marsh and I went out to Richards, Texas. I'd been there, I'd be there only a few months before Marsh and I were married. She was 18, I was 19, pastor in Richards, Texas, a town of 200. The town was 200. The church had about 30 to 40 on Sunday morning, but it was an incredible place to be. They gave us a little parsonage, a house on the property there right beside the church in Richards. And I'll never forget when we came, Marsh and I together now, married to move into this house, Hillman Urey, the chairman of the board, was there to give us the key. Hillman was great. You know, Hillman was in his 60s. I was 19. Hillman seemed so old then. Now I realize just how young he was. But you didn't notice that at 19. But I, he and I had such a good time. I mean, Hillman was full of life. He was, he was great. And, and so I said, you know, we need to spruce this church up. We need to paint the walls. We need to paint the stairwell. We need to paint some of the outside. I wanted the church to look great. And Hillman said, absolutely. So we're climbing ladders together. We're painting. We're working all over this church. And finally, after I got to know him better, I said, Hillman, why don't you be my associate pastor? Okay, I'd love that. So that was kind of an unofficial thing. This is the 19-year-old and the 60-year-old. We all, I had an associate pastor. He would help lead the singing on Sunday morning. He would read the scripture. You know, I would pray. I, I, I would give the sermon. We just kind of became a team. I loved Hillman Urey. Well, time had gone on, and one day I had a member of the church come to me and say, Bob, we've got a family moving to town, and they really need some help. The husband's going to have a quadruple bypass. The wife doesn't have a job. They've got several children. I think we need to take up a love offering. And I said, wow, sounds like it. I mean, when you've got a town of 200, everybody knows when a new family moves to town. So we knew the family was coming. I said, we need to help. So I stood up on Sunday morning and said, next Sunday we're going to take up a love offering. I talked about the family. When the service was over, Marsh and I went back over to the parsonage and the first person to meet us standing there was Hillman Urey. And he said, Bob, I am against this. This is not the right thing to do. He said, you don't know these people. These are bad people. They've lived here before, years ago. I owned a store. They had things from me on credit. They didn't pay. I asked them to pay. They said no. I went to their house. I went to their property. They said, get off the property or we're calling the police. They then left town. They never paid. I'm telling you, these are bad people. You don't know them. I'm against this. Whoa, Hillman, I didn't know this part of the story. I understand what you're saying. I thought about it for a little bit, and I said, but Hillman, the children didn't do any of those things. And I think those are the ones that are really suffering and are hungry. I think we ought to still take up the offering. You don't know what it took for me as a 19-year-old talking to my chairman of the board in his 60s to say, I, I think we ought to take up the offering when you're telling me don't do this. Then Hellman was gracious and he said, I'm not going to stand in your way, but I don't think it's the right thing to do. And I'm not going to support it. I said, Hellman, I understand. 
I completely understand why you would not support it. Okay, I don't think we should do it, but I'm not going to stand in your way. All right. I, I can't tell you the, the butterflies in my stomach for the next week as I'm trying to process what has just happened. So the next Sunday came and I stood up to the church and said, here's his family. We're going to take up a love offering um, and I'll take him a check this afternoon, one check. So we took up the offering and when the service was over, I went back over to the parsonage and to count the offering along with Miss Lenormand. She was the organist and the church treasurer. We got back over to the house and we're going counting the offering and I'm opening up all the checks. And I open up the largest check that would be given to help this family. And it was from Hillman Urey. And I thought, somebody knows how to live the values of our faith, even when it's so hard. In a way that I couldn't fully appreciate. At 19 years old, I've never forgotten it. It's been 50 years ago. He was showing me that even though it is difficult, you can live the values of our faith. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. If we can't do that, graduates, if you can't do that, then you'll never have family. You won't have long-term friends. In the end, you won't be able to build that team that loves and supports you so that you find strength when life has knocked you down to get back up. If we can't do that, then we won't be the church. Paul was writing to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, the Thessalonians, the, Col the Corinthians. We've got to do this. We are different but we are one in Christ. We can show compassion and kindness and we're going to have to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And so third, Paul then says, and give thanks. It's that simple. And give thanks. Again, if you go read Paul's letters, every single letter, somewhere in it, he will talk about and give thanks and be grateful. Gratitude is one of the fundamental values of the Christian faith. People have said you can't really be a faithful person if you're not a person of gratitude. To start looking past yourself, to be grateful for the people who have blessed you, to be grateful for the gift of God's grace. Seniors, graduates, the importance of living gratitude in your life. Instead of just looking at all the things you lack or all the people who may have hurt you, to be grateful for people who have blessed you. And if you start living in gratitude, you will start seeing that more and more often. You'll discover how much you have to be grateful for. Paul said, churches, we start with gratitude and everything else can then happen. Learn to be grateful. I think that's why I was so attracted to this story uh, of, of the Kentucky Derby. Because I just sensed that when Rick was talking and Eric was talking, they were people of gratitude. 
And as I was visiting with Rick Dawson, I could tell he would say how grateful he was for Eric Reed, his trainer, for Sonny, his jockey, and how amazing he was. He just talked about the things for which he was so grateful. And as we were visiting about it, I said, well, you know, it turned out to be a pretty lucrative day. He said, you know, I didn't go into this to win money in, the, in horse racing, but I am going to accept the win. Um, it was $1.86 million was the win. And I said, that's pretty good. And he said, you know, it's nice to be at a point when you don't think you need to write another check to put it in your account to make the balance bigger. And now it's fun to think about how you can give it away. I knew I'd found a man who was full of gratitude. As was Eric. Again, I'd been listening to Eric and he seemed so grateful that day that he was being interviewed. And I wanted to find out more about him. And so, while I was calling and talking to Rick, Wendy's and my assistant, Susan Mahard, she was calling Eric's mother. And Glenna answered. And Glenna was wonderful to talk to. Glenna Reed, she was happy to talk about her son. And she started telling us about him. It turned out that when she was 16 years old, she was working as a waitress, and there she met Herbert. He was 16 years old, and they fell in love. Herbert was an orphan. He had no family or home. Well, they fell in love, and at 17 years old, they got married. And her family loved on Herbert and took them in, and in the end, they wound up having Eric. And he was learning how to be a horse trainer, Herbert, growing all the way up through it. And then when Eric was five years old, he said, I'm going to start taking him to the track. I want him to learn how to be a horse trainer. Glenna wasn't excited about that. They had, she said, a number of discussions. In the end, Herbert won, and he began taking Eric to the track with him to learn to be a horse trainer. She said, we grew up in the Presbyterian church. Kids went to Sunday school. They went to VBS. We all went to church in the Presbyterian church. And I went, aha, uh -huh, I knew it. I knew it. I could tell by his language and the things he would say now and then. I knew there was a faith base. Well, Eric grew on up. He got into horse racing. And he was such a grateful person. I watched an interview with him the next day. And, you know, what he was saying was, I'm so grateful for my father that he taught me this business. From an early age, he inspired me and taught me. I'm so grateful for my wife, Kay. You'll never see her. She didn't like publicity. She didn't like being out here in the limelight, but she's working on the horses right now. She does so much. And I'm grateful for all my staff, my team. You, know, you don't think about it. What does it take to run a horse farm? Somebody's got to feed the horses, clean the stalls, wash the horses, brush the horses, take them and walk them around the track. So much. And he said, I, my staff, they're so good. And I was so happy when they got to take the walk. When you take the walk from your stall to the winner's circle, I mean, that's a walk you never forget. To the winner's circle to receive the roses. No, that, that's a walk. He said, I was so excited for my staff. They've worked so hard. They deserved it. And he's talking about all these people. Never once about himself, what I did, what I accomplished. Well, my father there and my wife and my staff and Rick and 
He's talking about all these people. And I, I thought it was amazing. But you know, it was Glenna, his mom, who told us the defining moment was six years before. Six years before, a terrible storm came through. And this storm came through and lightning struck their barn. They had 39 horses and the barn caught on fire. It knocked out 911. There was no communications. So only the people at the farm tried fighting the fire. And in the end, 26 horses died. And this thing burned to the ground. All the things they'd collected through the years, the saddles, the harnesses, you name, the rope, they all burned to the ground. They lost everything. Thirteen horses survived. And the next morning, it was Eric and his wife, Pat, who were out there looking and saying, maybe it's time to quit. Maybe it's time to quit. And about that time, two assistant trainers showed up with saddles and bridles and went over to one of the 13 horses, began to saddle and began to take them out on the track. And they said, it's not time to quit. We've got to take care of these horses. And they said, it's just struck us because we were in the midst of this grief and all that we had lost. They're talking about being knocked down. And to have these two assistant trainers come along and say, it is not time to quit. We've got to take care of these horses. And to be out there doing it, it rocked them back. And then other people started coming forward in the days to come, trying to encourage them, we will help you. And of course, their faith kicked in. And with all the support of family and friends and their faith, they made the decision they would build back from nothing. Now, the two assistant trainers who had been there on that day, younger people, in the next two years, both developed cancer and died. Talk about heartbreak. And what people didn't know was that here a few years later, they make it to Churchill Downs. And as they get ready for the race that day, Eric, in his pocket, has the pictures of his two friends, those two assistant trainers, that were there in that moment to encourage you to get back up, never knowing, never imagining that he's going to be in the winner's circle before the day was over with a picture of those two friends in his pocket. To be grateful, to live out of a spirit of gratitude. Graduates, there will be those who are there for you if you live in a spirit of gratitude so your eyes are open to see. We must give up malice and anger and bitterness and jealousy and lying about one another so that you can build a family, friends, a community. Paul said, put on compassion and kindness and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you and give thanks. And above all things, put on love, for it binds everything together. And that's what the world needs now. 
It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.